So welcome to uh, Legendary Pants Book Club. Uh, I'm Matthew Stanford. Uh, my wife will not be joining us this week. However, uh, I do have a special guest, uh, which is my father, uh, Mr. Sean Stanford. Uh, Sean, welcome. Hey, uh, thanks. I think that's the only time I've ever actually called you Sean to your face. Yeah, you're not actually not to my face, but all right. Yeah, I understand. Uh, yeah, so we're actually doing this over, uh, uh, over satellite, uh, where we're doing a remote podcast this, this time, uh, dad is not in the same room with me. So, um, it might sound a little different. Hopefully the quality will still be, uh, acceptable. Um, try not to be too loud on my mic here. So, okay. Um, yeah, so, uh, Literary Pants Book Club is a podcast where we talk about books and, uh, we talk about beer. Um, so let me, uh, let me actually cut right to the beer. Um, I actually picked something that I thought my wife would like uh, so that she could finish it because I'm not going to finish it tonight. Um, this is a Lambic uh, Creek, which is a cherry Belgian beer. Um, it's it's very sweet. Uh, it's almost like a dessert. It's very good. Uh, let's see. Lindemann's Creek is a Lambic made from local barley, unmalted wheat, cherry juice, aged hops, and wild airborne yeast. The brewers add no yeast. Bold cherry balances wild yeast complexity. True lambics are brewed only in Belgian Seine River Valley, neighboring Brussels. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely sweet, and it's very good. Um, hopefully uh, Mariah will finish that for me. Uh, since you're uh, not in the same room there, Dad, what are you drinking? I'm drinking Small Batch 1792 bourbon. Uh, not being a beer drinker, I've, I've actually tried to like beer several times and the only beer I've ever managed to drink all of and by all of I mean more than a sip or two is my brother Stevens your uncle Stevens uh, two of his beers actually were good enough that I finished them oh yeah uncle Stevens got good beer we'll have to uh, we'll have to get some from him next time we see him and, and, and feature it on the podcast I'm sure he'd be pleased with that <laughs> uh, do you remember what book we're talking about I hope you do no you're uh, Neuromancer by William Gibson uh, yes, uh, one of my all-time favorites. Um, let me uh, let me give a, a quick summary here off of uh, Amazon. Uh, the Matrix is a world within the world, a global consensus hallucination, the representation of every byte of data in cyberspace. Case has been the sharpest data thief in the business until vengeful former employees crippled his nervous system. By now, a new and very mysterious employer recruits him for a last chance run. The target, an unthinkably powerful artificial intelligence orbiting Earth in the service of the sinister Tessier Ashpool business clip. With a dead man riding shotgun and Molly, mirror-eyed street samurai to watch his back, Case embarks on an adventure that ups the ante on an entire genre of fiction. I've always thought that was pronounced Tessier Ashpool. You know, I don't know. I actually, and this is kind of unusual for our podcast, I actually read this book with my eyeballs rather than listening to it. Um, I believe, actually, uh, as we as we usually tell everyone, we're the only podcast not brought to you by Audible. Um, so I always pronounce it Tessier, but it might be Tessier. I have no idea. I, I'm pretty sure, and I did just reread this in preparation for this, that the matriarch of the clan was Tessier, and she was French. Uh, that would make some sense, given the uh, the, the, the how the book's uh, story progressed once they actually hit Freeport or Freeside. Um, okay, and I mean the the summary kind of makes it sound you know like oh it's an adventure that ups the ante of an entire genre of fiction. I have to say, unless they're talking about science fiction as a genre, I'm not sure that's necessarily true. But if they're talking about cyberpunk as a genre, I think they are understating it. 
to a degree, you're right. Um, so let me just say that this was the first of the Sprawl trilogy. The other two, of course, being Mona Lisa Overdrive and, um, damn it, what, Count what's Zero. the other one? Thank you, Count Zero. Um, however, I started reading, I was first exposed to Gibson when I read Johnny Mnemonic in Omni Magazine in either the very late 70s or the extremely like 80, early 81 time frame. So while Neuromancer did significantly up the ante as far as novel length books were concerned, Neuromancer was nothing to sneeze at. Uh, correction, Johnny Mnemonic was nothing to sneeze at. It was an earth-shattering uh, short story for for well for me because at the time I was uh, you know a young guy I was probably 17 18 years old I had just started working on computers uh, and computers were at the time nobody had any idea what the potential was and this was just a whole new way of thinking about the entire thing for me anyway uh yeah I, I mean that's uh I actually I actually just read Johnny Mnemonic this week um uh as part of um uh Burning Chrome his collection of short stories and um I, I yeah that's a good point especially since um it, it definitely takes place in the same world the same universe and I, I don't know the only thing I would say is that it didn't Johnny Mnemonic didn't have the the cyberspace element in it as much, although it did, I guess, because he had data in his head and storage and memory in his head. So I guess it is still that kind of computer-centric universe. Right. And one of the, the really pivotal things or key things about Johnny Mnemonic was the way Gibson used basically within the boundaries of the story, throwaway technology, a lot of ex-military tech, so on and so forth, uh, throwaway technology, technology uh, to, you know, and it was ubiquitous to do or to have the characters do really amazing things. The, the, the concept of the squid, um, the superconducting interference detector being used to pull just the ghosts of bit settings out of Johnny's uh, John, Johnny's brain was which was just stunning. Did you did you seriously just pull the acronym for Squid out of your head? Yes. That's that's very impressive. I, like I said, that book was like it was like somebody just walked up and hit me in the face. It was am uh, not book that story. It was amazing. Um, yeah, and I mean, actually, interestingly enough, I'm actually wearing my Black Sun T-shirt. Uh, speaking of cyberpunk, it, it is worth mentioning that, I mean, if you want to uh, say it happened with Johnny Mnemonic and and uh, actually at the beginning of Burning Chrome, Gibson says that true science fiction happens in the short story. Um, but uh, Gibson really did start this genre. So when Amazon says, you know, he ups the ante on entire genre fiction, I, I don't think that's right. He started this genre. I mean, this genre didn't even exist until he started writing. I'm not 100% certain that's perfectly true I, I, because Bruce Sterling uh, was writing stuff along these lines prior to Gibson. However, I do have to say that Gibson kind of refined it and tuned it and set it, you know, made it what it is today the same way kind of the Ramones made uh, took what was before and made it into punk rock. All the pieces were there, and there were some 
uh, some previous efforts, uh, the New York Dolls and um, uh, uh, Iggy Pop, uh, so on and so forth. But the Ramones really took all the all that had come before and made it into a definitive "this is punk" kind of thing. And I think Gibson did the exact same thing with Johnny Mnemonic. Um, okay, so you're suggesting that the the elements of cyberpunk existed, but Gibson was the one who kind of collated it. Absolutely, yeah, I, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay, uh, now uh, here's a question, and this is something I learned in college uh, because you know I'm all educated. Um, do you know uh, my? I had a science fiction uh, teacher uh, tell me once that uh, this is uh, Paul Youngquist tell me once that uh, Gibson apparently, you know, it may be apocryphal, but it's supposedly he got the idea for this you know world this concept uh by seeing a bus pass him with an advertisement for some sort of uh personal computer i think it was an apple and it it showed a guy's hand with a a serial port kind of implanted into it i I never heard that yeah yeah that's that's yeah that's what i learned that's like i said that's, that's that's it may be apocryphal but that's that's the story i heard no, I actually I've heard something similar to that. I don't remember if it's in reference to Gibson or to somebody else. However, uh, that that is ringing a bell somewhere. Uh, and uh, the other the other funny thing I heard about Gibson was that um, you know he had never owned a computer before uh, writing these books and these stories, and finally with actually with the money he was making from them he bought one, and he immediately hated it because it made noise. He was very disappointed by the fact that it made like a whirring noise. That's kind of funny. Actually, because <laughs> I guess I mean, I, you know, it's you got to figure he 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 wrote all these c- capabilities of computers and what computers should be able to do, and finally he's in, introduced to one, and it's just not that good. Yeah, well, when you are, I mean, the things he wrote about thirty years ago are still largely uh, science fiction. Um, certainly, the full immersion of the 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 uh, the console jockeys into the uh, the well we, now we call it the web the matrix cyberspace he called it uh, is still we're still not there yet however his conjecture about consoles and so on and so forth were not really spot on but certainly uh, certainly pretty accurate yeah uh, well um, yeah okay well in in speaking of cyberspace um, you know, uh, for those uh, most, most, we assume on this podcast that people have already read the book when they listen to it. However, for those who do not, um, yeah, good luck. Uh, but I will say that um, you know, cyberspace is represented in these books in kind of an interesting and and I would I would I would say fairly unique way. Um, uh, you, I mean, geez, you work with computers every day. Probably give it a better description than I could. As far as how cyberspace is represented in this, yeah. Yeah, cyberspace is basically represented as an essentially endless field of uh, shapes, colors, and um, moving streams of data. And every point in cyberspace has a location, kind of like what we think of as a URL. However, in the representation that is cyberspace, it actually has a three-dimensional location. So... Uh, and the larger your data center or the amount of data you have is, the larger it appears within cyberspace. And Gibson calls it a uh, he calls it a shared consensual illusion or something along those lines. Um, really interesting concept. 
um, and you navigate through cyberspace basically with keys on your on your on your deck. It's not done um, using haptic feedback or anything along those lines. You're, it, it, a, a console jack actually punches deck is the phrase they use, but um, he's actually touching keys on his computer. Gibson actually didn't think about, um, interestingly, did not know about the mouse, had never thought about hooking a joystick to a computer, uh, never considered haptic gloves, any of these things. Um, he was he was just straight up console. And in fact, he didn't even have what uh, we think of as um, uh, uh, visors like a, um, what's, what's the visors coming out? Uh, oh, uh, like the HoloLens? No, no, no. The um, or the Google Glass? Yeah, not even Google Glass. Although that's. Oh, I'm sorry. You're talking about the uh, the Oculus Rift. Oculus. Yeah, he didn't even have the concept of the Oculus Rift. What these guys saw was on a was on a monitor, uh, flat panel monitors. Although I think he did say they were flat panels, so he he definitely was ahead of the curve there. I'm not sure that um, I, I think I think when they were actually punching deck in the in the sense that. Uh, that like case i don't think he was looking through a monitor um he he was uh he had elect, uh, he had electrodes on his head that kind of overrode his vision oh i'm sorry yes sim stem that's right that's right i i yes yeah i stand corrected yeah I, you're conflating uh uh burning chrome burning chrome he had a he had a monitor the whole time yeah yeah he yeah he piggybacked that sim stem technology and that, obviously that's something we're still decades away from probably i don't know uh yes jeez i don't know um, but, uh, it is actually, it's kind of interesting when you describe the fact that, uh, he's punching deck, like his, the buttons are on the deck I, and, and thinking back to the book, I'm not even sure he really discussed the concept of a keyboard in the way that we know it. Well, he definitely talked about pushing keys or buttons. Um, in fact, at one point, one of the, I thought the interesting things about his concept of navigating cyberspace was you could take a jump to a location on the grid and if something went badly like a piece of uh, countermeasure or you know uh, anti-bad guy software came out after you you would actually he specifically mentions a button labeled full reverse <laughs> that they <laughs> pushed to get back out so uh, i was kind of kind of thought of this big red button in the middle of the board that said full <laughs> reverse that you just hammer uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and I don't know, I, I wonder too, like, cause you know, I read Neuromancer, I've also read Burning Chrome and, and Giant Mnemonic, uh, yeah, I wonder, the concept that he has for cyberspace seems extremely clever, but a little, I guess, out of touch with computing in, in, I guess what I mean is like it's hard to in in cyberspace you can see what's going on in places where in reality you would not be able to see those things. I, I'm not sure where you're going with that. Oh well, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with it either. It was just an interesting point to me. Okay. Well, I, well, here's 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 the point. I, I don't think that Gibson necessarily meant for ice and and other shapes to represent data per se, as opposed to like computational power or computational ability he at one point describes and you pulled this quote for me um that a, a children's toy calculator would look like an endless void uh overhung with a, a few basic commands right but i i i do think that the amount it wasn't just computational power but i i, I think the amount of data there had 
an impact on the size of the visual representation in cyberspace. I, I wouldn't bet my life on it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and, and if you remember, one of the things he always talked to, I mentioned several times, was the Eastern Seaboard Fission Authority and, and the pyramid uh, of the Eastern Seaboard Fission Authority right. and, how, and how big it was. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I always figured that he was using that to mean like that was the almost like a big ISP. Like that's where that's where you could hook in. Yeah, no, I yeah, I didn't get that impression. I got the impression that these blocks and he and that's something else. He never really talks about how you hook in. He just kind of you just kind of do it. Um, the implication, I guess, from our perspective, being that everybody's hooked up to a ubiquitous Wi-Fi uh, at very fast data rates. Um, but um, well, he did mention bouncing off satellites and things. Uh, he was he was talking about the delay that he would experience while he was in orbit. Right, right. But he never really talks about how the deck actually hooks to the network. Um, so, like I said, I I was assumed it was kind of a ubiquitous Wi-Fi. Or I, I assume that now, you know, thirty years ago there just was no such thing. Yeah, yeah. Thirty years ago, that's just pure magic. Yeah, essentially, yeah. So. Uh, you know, this book uh, has it was uh, you know like we said kind of a fundamental starting point for cyberpunk as a as a larger genre. At least Gibson's writing was. Um, but interestingly, uh, this particular book has, uh, by many uh, arguments, the, the, one of the finest opening lines ever written in literature. Uh, it is absolutely one of my one of the opening lines of literature that I can remember. There's only a handful I can remember, regardless of how many times I've read the book. But this one, yeah, definitely. Can you recite it for us? Uh, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. No wait. No wait. No, that's no, that's that's close. Uh sure. Uh, the sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. Ah, uh, like when I when I read that again. This last time, and I must have read this book like four or five times. When I read that again this last time, uh, it was it was still like, yeah, that's who that's that's as good as it gets. You could just stop writing right there. That's fantastic. Uh, absolutely, because I mean, it, it it sets the stage for everything. I mean, for everything he builds on over the next you know three books, really, because you know immediately that. Every, uh, that technology is the cornerstone of the world he's built and that things have gone wrong because, first of all, television tuned to a dead channel. I mean, and it, 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 keep in mind that Gibson wrote this 30 years ago when uh, television and, and LCDs or whatever don't have the same – Look, just look really sick when they were tuned to a, a dead channel. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's yeah, it, it establishes the technology, the, the importance of technology, and the dystopia that is uh, that all his characters live within. Uh, just in that one sentence, it, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, and I mean, and that's really, I mean, it just sets such a such a dreary tone and not even just with the technological motif, but it, it sets such a dreary tone that really follows the characters throughout this book and the next two, even when uh, times were, were good or, or times were, were, were going well for the characters, even when they were successful, uh, it still had this, just, just the sense of, of, of kind of malaise behind everything. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say malaise is a correct characterization. It, 
because people were busy, things were getting done. There just wasn't a lot of room for upward mobility. And um, if you if you've read Neuromancer, uh, correction, if you've read Johnny Mnemonic, and then you realize that Molly, uh, being one of the main characters as well in Neuromancer, that things did not go well for her and Johnny at after Johnny Mnemonic concluded, although things seem like they were going fine when we left them in, at the end of the story. Yeah. I, yeah. No, that's a good point. Uh, and actually that kind of, well, I don't know, that kind of, that, that kind of harkens back to what happened in Neuromancer because things were going pretty, pretty well between Case and Molly. And then suddenly Molly's like, I'm done with this shit. I'm out of here. Well, I don't, it wasn't, if you remember the note she wrote him, she just said, you know, she couldn't help it. That's just the way she's wired. So it, it wasn't that she wasn't happy. It wasn't that she didn't like him or, or whatever she felt for him. It's not that it stopped. Just for some reason, she just had to had to move on. I mean, it could be that, you know, looking at the character, and I've read this book a bunch of times, that she felt like if she hung around, things might go badly again the way they did for Johnny. I see. Uh, that's uh, that's an interesting observation. I actually didn't. I didn't even know until I read Johnny Mnemonic that Molly's character showed up in one of his short stories. Uh, actually, all of the sprawl trilogies. Uh, correction. All of the sprawl stories feature the same set of characters. They're mentioned in all of them. Right. 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 That's. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm finding that out now that I'm reading through Burning Chrome. And actually, well, and and I will say too, I've read this book a few times and I I just read it again. And I think this this is the first time I've read it since college. I will say though that this book, I I forgot quite how um, on a down note it, it ended. And, and I'm, and actually, it, 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 it is the the book itself is kind of sandwiched nicely between, again, that kind of dreary opening line, and then at the end, Case never sees Molly again. I mean, he spends all of the money he made doing things that he really doesn't need. Yeah, and actually, I don't know why what you just said made me think of this, but the description you read out of Amazon said that. Pointed to something about Case being, you know, before he, his nerves were burned out, was one of the greatest console jockeys, you know, da da da. He actually said several times Case really wasn't that good. He was good, but he wasn't like super good. And he relied heavily upon the Dixie Flatline, who was one of the supreme console jockeys of his of his era, and who was Case's mentor. Um, uh, there's this one point at which uh, Case and the Flatline are navigating through cyberspace, and um, Flatline says something like, hey, let's go over here to this location, and he takes control and jumps them over there like super fast, and Case says something about how fast it was, and Flatline says, boy, I was that fast when I was alive. So, uh, yeah, the Case wasn't case wasn't uh, a legendary console jockey right i i mean yeah that's a that's a that's a good observation and i mean he case was almost like a like you know in the right place at the right time i mean he became dixie's mentee um in a, in a time when you kind of gather that dixie didn't really take mentees on um and i think uh i think the uh like when you first meet the the flatline 
uh, Case says, do, do you, you know, uh, you know, I'm Case, and Dixie says, uh, Joe Boy, Miami, quick study. Yeah, he does. That's exactly what he says. In fact, he says it twice because Case resets him to see if he's uh, <laughs> what will happen. And when he resets, he says the exact same thing to the exact same phrase, which is kind of establishing how that character um, is is a construct. He's not a person per se. Right, which actually, and, and, and we should, I mean, Flatline was an amazing character considering what he actually was as far as his physicality was concerned. Or or lack thereof, yeah. In fact, that was one of my favorite descriptions. And when we were working on the expansion for our Osric uh, towards the, the first pass at it, um, he specifically says that the, the Flatline's cartridge was about the size of an automatic weapon magazine. Uh, so, and that again goes back to that casual use of throwaway, uh, often military technology that Gibson uh, just, again, was indicative of his casual use of leftover, reworked, and uh, and former military technology into pretty much everything he did. And, and that showed up again and again and again and again in his work. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, in, in uh, I would say that that's kind of a twofold uh, thing. I mean, the first of all, he's he's writing in a time where uh, the the reality of war with the Soviets was was all around him, um, and uh, it also helps to set this kind of uh, you know when whenever you see like post apocalyptic rundown like film or images, you always see beaten up military equipment or all of the characters are wearing like faded crappy BDU uh, blouses and things like that. So I, I think that, I think that he kind of, uh, yeah, exactly. And I think that he kind of tapped into that, that uh, association with kind of like surplus leftover decades old military equipment. And that, 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 you know, that kind of dreary motif we've been discussing since, uh, since the first line. Yeah, absolutely. I, it was one, of, like I said, it was one of the cornerstones of his of his of his books, and it appears throughout the Sprawl trilogy, and actually even into some of his later uh, works. Uh, like uh, I once, I started reading one of his later books. I think it was not Coherent Light, something. Was it Pattern Recognition? And, I think it was that series, uh, and 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 that chock full of you know beat up equipment and former military stuff and just... right i think uh in in pattern recognition the main character is a is a woman um who she uh her her brother's like an ex-marine right i don't remember anything about her brother she worked for advertise she was like an advertising consultant but she wore a like world war ii era bomber jacket it was a very specific bomber jacket that she wore. Yeah, no, that's something different. Uh, I'm actually thinking of a different series. Hang on, let me let me pull up Audible or Amazon and see what I'm looking at. Uh, the other thing I want to say about the Flatline is that uh, his his personality was was interesting. Um, I didn't. I guess he was kind of Southern, which is why they called him Dixie. Uh, yeah, and, he was from Florida. Right, and uh, it's kind of like a. It's interesting listening to him talk about, you know, the, the the shit he's doing in cyberspace because he's got this kind of southern accent which you don't typically associate with uh, you know, high-tech computer guru. Yeah, there's that. 
you know, how uh, we're computer talent. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's where it is, right? Right. Well, I mean, and that's, that's kind of why cyberpunk is such an interesting genre is because, uh, you know, above and beyond anything else, anyone can use a computer. Right. And, and, and keep in mind that the, the sprawl was Bama, right? The Boston, Atlanta, Metropolitan Axis. Uh, so, you know, the South obviously figured heavily into Gibson's thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I want to say one of the really, especially with Neuromancer, not so much with the others, but the early parts of Neuromancer had very much, you know, they were set in um, uh, Japan. I can't remember the name of the, the town he uses. Uh, he's in Chiba City, which I thought was actually in China. I kind of got the impression it was Japan. I uh, I, I, could I could be wrong. I thought I thought he was in China, like because I thought that he talked about the yakuza hopping the ocean over to China and taking Ch- Chiba City. Maybe so. Um, but again, from my perspective, and one of the things that I get a strong feeling of not deja vu but familiarity because of the time i spent uh you know as, as, a, as a as a young man in okinawa japan um i can immediately recognize the setting uh not so much the the, the you know obviously the bleakness but the the, the busy streets the the small alleys the the arcade the, the video arcade parlors i mean that was very much a function or feature that, uh, of the uh, the places I spent my time uh, uh, in those days when I was overseas. And what, what years were you over there? Uh, 1982 to 1984. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, you're you're right there in that kind of time frame. Yeah, and, and you know, the concept of a, a video arcade spilling out into the street and, you know, the, the, the hyper – noise and light and you know all this stuff going on is that's very much part of the experience interesting i i didn't uh i didn't realize that you could draw a um a a sort of uh familiarity tangent to your time that you spent in okinawa yeah absolutely yeah uh, if the, all the parts in Chiba city are like that for me huh and i don't know man i saw i saw a picture of that apartment you lived in uh, it was not not run down uh, yeah, and it looked the same when I lived there 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, uh, Google Google Maps is amazing for stuff like that. It, indeed, it is. Um, like, oh, so, there's there's Joe's house. That looks the same. I mean, yeah, and it's other. It's 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 not just the arcades. It's the small beat up bars. Uh, it's the the storefronts full of weird crap like. Um, like asps and throwing stars and stuff like that. You, I mean, that stuff actually exists over there. I, you, I used to see it all the time. Interesting. Um, okay, I wanted to talk about, um, unless you pulled up that thing you were looking at. Yeah, it was called, um, it's the Peripheral Series. I have not read, the, I haven't read much of Gibson's newer stuff. I've just read Pattern Recognition. Yeah, I started reading Pattern Recognition, did not care for it. Um, it was it was pretty much count zero without being in the future. Well, Gibson's take on technology I find fascinating. Uh, this was more Gibson's take on culture, and I, I what that I did not find that as interesting. Yeah, no, I, I can totally I can totally grok with you on that. I mean, did you say grok? Of course, I said grok. The hell's wrong with you? <laughs> Man, that's 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 a cornerstone of, of, of culture, man. 
Okay, let's move on. <laughs> you catch the reference, right? Of course I catch your reference. Okay. <laughs> That's very important. Um, but no, I, as I said, I, 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 I totally understand what you're saying there because, yeah, Gibson's, Gibson's take on culture, and I read, I read Pattern Recognition, and Pattern Recognition came out kind of before the whole YouTube thing, and his take on culture from, like, like internet culture, um, it was a little off. And while he may have been very prescient with his with his techno with his technology, his his ideas of culture I think are a little dated. Uh, he just I don't know. He came off as like a curmudgeonly old man half the time. Again, I I got part of the way into that and and didn't care enough to finish it, so it it got dropped. Um, so yeah. However, I'm finding the peripheral to be interesting. It's it's kind of sprawlish but not quite as in the future and not quite as bleak at the future it's kind of i think maybe what gibson would have would have written if he had written the sprawl trilogy in the late 90s instead of the late 80s or a correction actually started the thing in the late 70s oh okay so so um you know technology is not quite as uh as 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 a as much of a human dead end in in the peripheral series, yeah, no, um, and the technology is more recognizable. Uh, one of the characters is basically makes a living playing, uh, basically playing a game. She's online with a with a you know massively uh, multiplayer online role playing game or whatever, and she takes contracts within that game for other players to do various things. Uh, so it's, it's more recognizable than Neuromancer and the Sprawl trilogy. I gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Um, maybe I'll, I'll check that out if I get the time, although we're on a pretty, we're a pretty tight reading schedule for this damn podcast. Yeah, no doubt. Um, now I wanted to talk about the, uh, the AIs uh, for Gibson. Um, and really in my mind, in the, in Neuromancer, at least, I haven't encountered many other AIs in his other stories yet. Uh, but the AIs kind of fall in two distinct categories. The the one being, you know, Neuromancer and Wintermute, the traditional, like, I am an artificial intelligence, I was written, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the other being the Flatline, who is, uh, they, he described him as a personality construct. Yes. Uh, and I find it, I find it interesting that, that Gibson distinguishes between the two. Uh, because, right, the, the, and, the, and the basic difference is, I believe, having, like I said, again, having read Neuromancer probably 10 or 12 times, uh, that an AI can exceed its programming and a construct cannot. Okay, so while a construct may be very sophisticated, it will definitely hit a hard limit at some point. Not that so much as it can't do anything new. Okay, I see what you're saying. At least not within the – and this gets into an interesting area. Uh, uh, but uh, so let me just say, the construct cannot exceed the limitations of its, of, uh, basically, of the image that was taken of the brain. Okay, so a couple interesting things with that. The first being that if you reset a construct, it goes back to the instant it was completed. So what Case does is he basically leaves the flatline running in his Hosaka. Uh, 
for the entire, he leaves it on the entire time. Even when the Hasaka's on standby, there's enough power going into the flat line to keep him running. Now this pisses the flat line off unfathomably. So the flat line is basically hung in limbo while Case puts the Hosaka on standby. And with the end result that the flat line is like, erase me when this is over. I don't want to exist anymore, which is completely understandable. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, and that's I think what ends up happening to him. I think Wintermute promises to erase him, which brings me to my second point or observation, I should say. At the very end, one of the last things Case sees before he basically pilots that Chinese icebreaker out of Neuromancer's con- uh, you know uh, constructed world is he sees Linda Lee, his ex-girlfriend on that beach with someone else. The implication being, I, as far as I can take it, that that is the flat line. So I think... Uh, nope, I don't think you're quite right. Do you mean at the end of the book where he sees the three of them in cyberspace? Or yes. do you mean when he's in... Okay, so that's that's not when he's doing the Chinese. That's the very end. It's like the last like, no, few you, paragraphs yes, you of are, the book. You are correct. I, and I, he sees uh, the Finn, which is Wintermute. He right. sees Linda Lee, which is Linda Lee. And then, which is Neuromancer's reconstruction of Linda Lee. And then he sees the Brazilian beach boy. That's I, Neuromancer. I don't think so. The impression I got was that, well, I'd have to look it up. I have to look I'll the, pull it up right now. Yeah, do that. Because I def, distinctly got the impression that, that was the, the third character was the flat line, not the fin. You might be right, and that would make sense. Yeah, because actually, when I was rereading it, I was like, oh... I had completely forgotten about a little point, and it's weird. I guess as a college student, I just I just flew past all the cool shit in this book and, and dwelled on all the stupid crap. Well, actually, I think what happened is probably since you were a dumb college kid is you dwelled on the – you focused on the same thing I did when I was your age. I fo- focused on the technology and the implications thereof, which still fascinate me, but I skimmed over some of the more personality and emotional-driven things, which now I'm starting to uh, – in my recent rereadings, I focused on. So I'm actually finding some further depth to the book than I – you know, the, the more I read it. Right. And I'm wondering, I mean, since, you know, since college, I've, you know, I've, I've met with enough tragedy. I've, I've, you know, married, I've had a child. So I'm wondering if I, I'm just simply more emotionally mature and I could pick up on some of those trends. Oh, mature is the right word, but definitely uh, maybe uh, attuned. What was that? Attuned. Oh, right. So right that no, I'm, I'm pulling, I'm pulling up the book now. Yeah, I, I have it, but I, I couldn't find the Kindle. It's sitting on a Kindle somewhere. Yeah, I've got the cloud leader, the cloud one up. Yeah, uh, and one October, this is a quote from Neuromancer. Uh, this is the last uh, two paragraphs of the book. Um, Gibson, I just want to make sure I'm attributing just to cover this there. And one October night, punching himself past the scarlet tears of the Eastern Seaboard Vision Authority, he saw three figures, tiny, impossible, who stood at the very edge of one of the vast steps of data. Small as they were, he could make out the boy's grin, his pink gums, the glitter of the long gray eyes that had been Riviera's. Linda still wore his jacket. She waved as he passed, but the third figure, close behind her, arm across her shoulders, was himself. Oh, it was Case. Yeah. I'm sorry, it wasn't the Finn. It was Case. I gathered that that was Neuromancer's construction of Case. Right, but the interesting thing was, and Neuromancer says this very clearly, is that to people living 
in his constructed reality don't know they're not real. So, uh, so basically, what I took out of that was Linda Lee was, for all intents and purposes, a real person at that point, and, right. appar- and apparently, so was Case. Now, I, I, you know what? I'm I, sorry. I, I'm actually, I actually didn't read the next line here. The next line says, "Somewhere very close, the laugh that wasn't laughter," which is how the flat line is described that's as what laughing. It was. Yes, that's what it was. And earlier in the book. Case says to Neuromancer that he tells Neuromancer that the flat line wants to be erased, and Neuromancer says something to the effect of, I'll take care of the flat line. So that's why I got the impression that Neuromancer, using the flat line's construct or the, the, the image of the flat line, had built a, a companion for Linda Lee and basically a reality for the flat line um, uh, within his construct of reality. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Oh, wow. See, I didn't even, I didn't quite catch that. And, uh, you know, I was reading it at work, so I might not have, I might have just breezed past that line. But yeah, that's a good, that's a good observation. So, so case is actually the flat line just living as this construction of case uh, in order to live with Linda Lee, because Linda Lee wouldn't live without case, at least in, Neuromancer's construction, right? Well, which is you know, which is true anyway, because there's a whole exposition about why Linda Lee stole his uh, his ram and went to sell it, and you know the the fact she got killed. Uh, I mean, the, the the upshot was it was that she was desperately in love with him, and that she was trying to get his attention and to. Take him off the basically the uh, the death spiral he was on. Right, right. His uh, his crazy huge sixteen gigabytes of RAM. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, oh, the late seventies and early eighties were so there with their size of data. Well, I don't think was it Morrow's law or whatever it had really been. Um, well explored at the time. Can, um, I have a vague understanding of what Morals Law is. What, what is that? Uh, Morals Law says that memory, uh, that storage capacity and CPU power will double every 18 months. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, so if, if that law hadn't existed then, then the, the, the numbers would, would not make any sense. Yeah. Hang on a second. I'm not sure that's the guy's name. Yeah, sixteen. I mean, sixteen gigabytes of RAM. I have single files bigger than sixteen gigabytes. Oh, I'm sorry, it's Moore's Law. Moore's Law. I'll put a link to some of this stuff in the liner notes of the episode. So yeah, can, yeah, there's a Wikipedia entry. I'm sure there is. Yeah, that's see, and that yeah, the the concept of the internet as a knowledge base never really occurred to any of you people back in the eighties. Uh, that is not true. Oh. Psh. I've read a lot of 80s era science fiction. No one came close. Um, I w- well, I don't know if it was the 80s. I would say, um, what's his name wasn't too far off. Uh, uh, Stevenson with yeah. Snow Crash? Oh, yeah, that was early 90s. Okay, well, he probably started writing in the 80s. He knew where shit was going. Stevenson's construction of the metaverse has its own set of, of, of problems. Although he, he did do very well with some of it. Oh no! There, and we can do snow crash another time. But yes, there are all kinds of 
issues with Stevenson's take on uh, what we now call the Internet, although Stevenson's take on what we now call the Internet was actually closer in line to, like, a World of Warcraft or Second Life. Right, 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 which is kind of interesting. Um, and actually, uh, well, you know what? Let me save that because, yeah, we'll, we'll do an episode on Snow Crash in the not-too-distant future. Well, that would be appropriate because I think we are the world's experts on we Snow are. Crash. We are the leading experts on Snow Crash. Um, a, a, a justification we can come to, uh, in that episode. True. Um, okay. So is there, is there anything else you wanted to cover or are we, uh, we about done here? Wow. I, I don't know. I, I see I, now I feel like, and I don't know that I'm prepared to discuss it at this point because I don't put much thought into it, but I feel like that Gibson's take on technology was so revelatory, so groundbreaking that his ability to build emotion and uh, tragedy and um, you know human drives into his characters is kind of overlooked. I would uh, you mean like in 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 uh, the analysis of other readers and, and reviews and things like that? Well, even in what we talked about over the last 45 minutes, I mean, it's been largely about Gibson's take on technology uh, without really talking about the motivations of the characters, which I thought, yeah, again, having read it now many times, uh, I get more out of it every time I read it. And that's true of all of the Sproul uh, books, including um, Giant Mnemonic, the, the one that kind of kicked it all off. Uh, that's, uh, that's yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say you're wrong. I, 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 I mean... We, Ryan and I kind of talked about this with uh, a Scalzi book where the setting popped out more than the story. And it might be that we only read it twice. So the story didn't really register because the setting was still so novel. Um, and, and, and I do agree that now that I've read Neuromancer several times, that the characters do get more and more interesting to me every, uh, every time I read it. And, and I wouldn't want to underplay that. However, I will say that his characters, while interesting, are not groundbreaking. No, they're not. But by the same token, this goes back to the one of the basic tenets of storytelling. Something even you know something Roddenberry recognized uh, when he said that Star Trek was wagon train to the stars. Was that the setting was less important than the characters? And, and and Stevenson is also a, a a very good example of this, especially when if you read some of his later stuff like uh, the Baroque Cycle, uh, which I read all of. Um, and for all that the or Cryptonomicon, for all that the setting was very interesting, you have to be involved in the characters, or else you really can't last past the end of a short story. And this goes back to something you said earlier, which is that Gibson said that all science fiction takes or it takes place in a short story or the best science fiction takes place in a short story or something to that effect is if all you're going to do is talk about how technology impacts people, the only way you can really do that is through a short story. If you go any longer than that, then you have to start working people and their motivations and you know your classic storylines into uh and weaving it in and through 
and it can be influenced by the technology in order to hold your readers. Otherwise, it's just a long technical manual, and, and really it's boring. That's yeah, I would I would agree. I mean, and 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 that's kind of I think that's that was kind of his point. And this was all in the introduction to Burning Chrome, where he said that. Um, but you know, in order to in order to really you know, in order to understand the implications of a technology, you may only need a few pages of, you know, hey, this is what's going on. Any more than that, you're you're talking about too much exposition anyways. So, uh, yeah, I would absolutely agree that, that, that the story and the characters become so much more important the longer your book. And, yeah, like I said, I, I mean, Gibson's characters were fascinating, uh, but the reason that his his setting stands out so much as compared to his characters is because of the groundbreaking nature uh or certainly the prescient nature now i'm wondering if i'm wondering if if maybe if he had like pushed johnny mnemonic as a like an introductory story to the book if that would have changed that uh, 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 not quite how how so because johnny mnemonic would introduce you to the setting the technology etc and allow you to go, oh, okay, now I know what's going on, and then I'm not quite as as starstruck by it while I'm reading through the book itself. Uh, so keep in mind what I well, I think what I said in like the first five minutes of this is that John, I read John Mnemonic years before Neuromancer was released when it was a short story in, I believe, Omni Magazine. So for me, that is exactly how it worked out. John Mnemonic was an introduction to the sprawl. Oh, okay. And you see, you still you still were kind of distracted by the um, the setting uh, when you read Neuromancer the first few times. Then. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's certainly a, an interesting take on it. Um. Okay. Uh. So. Um. Now. Uh. You're our guest. So give me a a quick like. You know. Would you recommend this book to and and to whom? I would absolutely recommend Neuromancer. In fact, I would recommend all of Gibson's sprawl stories. Uh, to whom? It's obviously going to have to be somebody who's either fascinated by or at least um, uh, taken by technology because technology is a pivotal part of the story. The characters are important, and their motivations and thoughts and feelings are important as well, but they aren't the they aren't uh, the the, the they aren't, uh, while they are important to the movement of the story, they're not key to the narrative, I guess is the way I would put it. Um, but, yeah, I really can't recommend these enough. Uh, certainly Neuromancer. Uh, there are some moments of um, Burning Chrome, uh, not correction, not Burning Chrome, Mona Lisa Overdrive, uh, that kind of drag. Uh, but Neuromancer is... Uh, you know, Gibson hit it out of the park on his first try. Uh, just amazing, amazing work. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, okay. Uh, well, uh, hey, Dad, uh, thanks for being our guest tonight. Uh, and, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Hey, no worries. Uh, yeah, happy to help. All righty. Um, yeah, so this is uh, Legendary Pants Book Club. Um, you can find us on iTunes and, hey, leave us a review or uh, give us a rating. Uh, you can just search Legendary Pants our website is legendarypants.net. Uh, you can send us an email directly, bookclub at legendarypants.net. Um, next week uh, is our Halloween episode. Uh, Mariah and I, Mariah will be back, and uh, we have read Carrie by Stephen King. I so, read that uh, many years ago. Did you, did you like it? It was good. It was interesting, although I preferred um, 
some of his other stuff better. Salem's Lot was actually my The Shining is my favorite Stephen King. The Shining, yeah. Well, Mariah is so terrified of The Shining she wouldn't let us read that one. Yeah, so no, we read. I, I agree with her 100. <laughs> percent And I've read it four times. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we'll be t- talking about Carrie. It's it's a shorter book. Uh, it is on Audible, uh, and that's how we listen to it. Uh, so uh, look forward to that next week. Alrighty. Uh, have fun.